0: Thank you for checking out the Messages of New Grace. We are a group of believers in Roanoke, Virginia who are dedicated to loving God, loving others, and serving others. We hope that today's message is a blessing to you and your family. 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. We're, we're taking a little bit of a break from uh, the study of Elijah and Elisha this week to uh, observe the Lord's Supper. We're going to jump right back into that next week. And next week we're talking about a very, very difficult but very necessary topic, especially in Christian circles where we're talking about depression. Uh, depression is an issue that too often is not talked about in our circles because it's looked down upon and people don't understand it. But Elijah went through it. David went through it. Paul went through it. A lot of believers went through it. So we're going to be looking at that next week. So I encourage you to be here as we talk about that. But 1 Corinthians chapter 1 I'm sorry, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're going to be looking at the Lord's Supper. Now, the Lord's Supper is, is a very special time in the life of a church and the life of the believer. It's a time where we, as God's children, we have a chance to come together and to remember what God did for us to purchase our salvation. It's, it's a time for us to remember what it means to be a sinner in need of a savior. The Lord's Supper is a regular reminder that God loved us so much that he took on flesh. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He died a death on the cross. We should have suffered and died. He had the wrath of God poured out on him for our sins. He died, was buried, and rose again to reconcile us to God the Father, to adopt us back into the family of God. And the Lord's Supper reminds us of that because it was our sins that put Jesus on the cross. It wasn't his sins. It wasn't his mistakes. It was our sins. When the God poured out his wrath on sin he poured it out on his only son and he did it so that because we couldn't take that wrath so jesus he suffered and died for my sins it was my transgressions that crushed his body it was my sins that pierced him and caused his blood to be shed the lord's supper reminds us that because god loved us so much that he allowed his son to be broken and bruise and have his blood poured out for us. My punishment was placed on him so I could have peace. His wounds healed me. We were sinners, but Christ died for us. And see, a church is not made up of of programs and buildings. It's, it's made up of a people who are unified under God, under the son of God, worshiping him as one. And in the, in the book of Corinthians, these believers, and even today, church, the believers, they come together, they sing praises to God, they worship God, they hear God's word, and they observe the Lord's supper to remember what God did for them. Here at New Grace, when we observe the Lord's Supper, we dedicate the entire service to it. We want to give it the honor that it deserves. We want to take time and and even have a whole service where we just remember what Christ did for us. It's a time where we set aside to remember the depth of God's love for us and what he endured on the cross to reconcile us to God the Father. The Lord's Supper reminds us, of the grace that God has given us and the grace we are to give to others. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul, he is, he is writing to the church at Corinth. And the church at Corinth was a church he had started on one of his earlier missionary journeys. And he started the church and stayed there for a while. And now he's he's on his, another missionary journey. And he's getting reports about things that are happening at Corinth that... Uh, he's not, he doesn't approve of, that there, there's infighting, there's false teachings going on, there's division in the church, and so he writes the, the letter of, of 1 Corinthians to kind of correct some of these issues. And when Paul writes this letter to address the problems he's hearing and correct some of the wrong thinking and the wrong teaching that these people are dealing with. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse number 17, the Bible says, Now in this, That I declare unto you, I praise you not that you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must be also heresies among you that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. So Paul, right off the bat here, he is rebuking the church because when they come together it's not a time of worship. It's not a time of peace. It's not a time of praising God together. It's a time of turmoil and division. They're fighting over silly things. They're fighting over who's the better teacher, Paul or Apollos, or or what teaching is correct, or what method of of taking the Lord's Supper is correct. And they have all these these different infightings that they're they're going through and they're dealing with, and it's, it's a mess. And Paul's like, when you come together, it's It's not a time of praising God. It's a time of turmoil, and you're turning off your lost world because when they come to church and they see a bunch of believers fighting, why would they want anything to do with God? And so it's it's a tragedy in the church. Let's keep reading verse number 20. When you come together, therefore, in one place, this is not to eat the Lord's supper, for in eating everyone taketh before other his own supper, And one is hungry, and another is drunken. Now, one of the main issues that they were dealing with in this church was the way that they observed the Lord's Supper. Now, the Lord's Supper, of course, as we do it, is really kind of the way that it was supposed to be done, where there was a service, you remember what was going on, you would take a little bit of bread and break it, and everyone would have their piece of bread, and they would have a little bit of juice. And whether they did it with one cup and they passed it around, which is gross, or they all had their own little cups, it doesn't matter. But the way they were observing the Lord's Supper was people were coming to church and they were, they were basically packing their, their lunch for the day. They were bringing feasts to church. And it was causing a lot of problems because people who were wealthy, they would bring all kinds of food. And all kinds of drink. And they'd have a great big party there in the church. And they'd eat a bunch and stuff themselves. And even he goes, even some of you are getting drunk at church because you're, you're so celebrating the Lord's Supper that you're getting drunk at church. And then you've got people who, who don't have anything. And you're bringing shame to them. You're bringing embarrassment to them because they have nothing. And here you are feasting like a pig. And it's, 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 it's hurting the cause of Christ. People with means were bringing feasts to church while the poor had nothing, and it was causing a class division in the church. The kind of wealthy were pitted against the, the poor, and it was, Paul says, it's a shame to the Lord's Supper. They were making a mockery of the Lord's Supper. Let's keep reading verse number 22. He says What? Have you not houses to eat and to drink in? Or despise you the church of God and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. That's a pretty strong rebuke that Paul is getting. He goes, Look, you've got houses to eat your lunch in. That's what that's what your house is for. Your house is to eat your eat your meal. Your house is to, to, to have all your fun and have your parties. Your house is there. That's not what church is for. That's not what God, the, the Lord's Supper is for. It's a time for us to come together and to remember God and to be unified as a church. He goes, so I'm not going to praise you in what you're doing because you are shaming the church. You are shaming the cause of Christ and you are an embarrassment to what Jesus wants to do on earth. Paul is writing to a group of believers that were divided. They were divided and they were struggling and being ineffective. They were divided over a lot of things. They were divided over their preferences. What you could and could not eat. Where you could and could not go. What you could and could not do. They were divided over the interpretations of Jesus' law. Were they supposed to obey the Old Testament law as well as what Jesus said? Did they need the the Jewish law and as well as salvation through grace, by grace, through faith? Was it and they were kind of debating over what Jesus said when he what Jesus really meant when he said he came to fulfill the law and not get rid of it? And so there was a lot of debate over the interpretation of the scripture. They were divided over their political views. They were divided over their race relations. They were divided divided over the role of government in their lives. They were supposed to be coming together to observe the Lord's Supper in unity, as a family of God, as one unit, remembering God and praising Him for what He did. But they were divided in every area of their life, and there was disagreement. And what Paul is showing us is that there is a basis for real peaceful loving community despite our differences cuz even in our church we've got a lot of differences of opinion we've all got things that we should be done or things we like the way things should be done we we want to sing these type songs or worship this way or dress this way or act this way or watch this or go there and we've all got these these preferences and these things we like but paul's saying no matter what your your difference are and look i know this is going to shock some of you but there may be a democrat or two in this room i, I know i know there may be a libertarian behind this pulpit. There may be all kinds of different political views. There may be different beliefs about, and look, there may be some people that think Virginia Tech's a great football program, and then there's others that know the truth. Right, John? Amen. Well, Paul is telling us that no matter what divides us, we're unified under the blood of Christ. No matter what our background is, no matter where we came from, no matter what you're, you're, you grew up doing or grew up believing, you know, we, our, we were talking the other day about our, our kids, they just don't like, they're, they're hard to please. Like, how many of y'all, when y'all were kids, your hot dog bun was sometimes a piece of white bread? All right, I got it. We got it. How many of y'all like that? We tell our kids that, and they're like, we can't, we don't have a hot dog bun? I put it on a piece of white bread. Oh, oh Gross. I'm like, eat your hot dog on white bread to get you some government cheese and shut up. That's, that's how I was raised. But our kids, they, I mean, they just, they got to have their hot dog buns. But no matter what your, your, your raising was, no matter if you were, you were raised to understand that white bread and hot dogs are good, or you were raised a little snootier like my kids, no matter what our background is, we're all united in Christ. We're all united in the blood of Jesus so the basis for, for, the, for everything that we say, everything that we do in every worship, uh, the basis for all that we are all the same, the same uh, race, that we're not all the same race, we're not all the same, don't all vote the same, we don't all make the same amount of money, but every one of us are part of the same body of Christ. Every believer, regardless of their background, is unified in the body of Christ. We all worship the same Savior. We've all been saved from the same hell. You know, you, because your, your daddy was a deacon doesn't mean that your hell was less than mine. It's probably worse. But we all saved from the same hell. We're all saved by the same Savior. We all have the same Holy Spirit living inside of us. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. No matter who you are, no matter how good you think you were or how good you think you are, every single one of us are broken people in need of a Savior. And the Lord's Supper is a physical demonstration of our unity as a body of Christ through his broken body and his shed blood. The Lord's Supper is where we come together declaring that we were all equally sinful and we are all equally loved. And we've all found the same grace from the same loving God. Now grace is getting something that we don't deserve. We don't deserve forgiveness. We don't deserve atonement. We don't deserve redemption. We don't deserve reconciliation. We don't deserve Jesus. But through grace we have him. And through grace we have forgiveness. And through grace we have atonement. And through grace we have reconciliation. And Paul shows us what that what the Lord's Supper how the Lord's Supper shows us the grace that we have received. So the first thing the Lord's Supper shows number 1, it shows us grace from the past. Look at verse number 23. 1 Corinthians 11, for I have received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me, and after the same manner, he also, he took the cup, and when he had supped, saying, this cup is a new testament in my blood, this do as oft as you drink it in remembrance of of me, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. The greatest display of grace the world has ever seen was the perfect son of God dying on the cross for mankind. Willingly and eagerly coming down, living a perfect life. Doing what we could not do and perfectly fulfilling the law and then going to the cross and dying for our sins and allowing his body to be broken for our sins and his blood to be shed for our transgressions so that we could have our sin debt paid and we could be reconciled to the God, the father. That's the greatest display of grace the world has ever seen. Grace was given to us at the cross and it's received. We accept his death, burial, and resurrection as payment for our sins and the only way of salvation to God the Father. As we receive the bread, it reminds us of how his body was broken for us. How he gave to us. What we didn't deserve. You know, I always encourage people, and I try to do it several times a year, read the crucifixion regularly. Not just in your regular Bible reading, but just read what Jesus really had to go through, how he was beaten. And sometimes we kind of we don't really understand the severity of his beating. But when they scourged him with the cat nine tails, they would beat him so severely. Most people never survived that. But he endured that beating and the, the whips would, the claws, the, the pieces of metal and bone that were on the canine tails would go into his flesh and rip his flesh apart and tear hunks of it. And, you know, I, I read a book by a doctor who did kind of a medical study of the crucifixion. And he said that Jesus, his bones and his ribcage were probably exposed. You could probably see his lungs through his ribcage. The nerves on his back were open. He probably had his stomach torn to pieces. And he should have died from loss of blood and, and, and shock, but he didn't. Then they, they mock him and they ridicule him and they spit on him with a crown of thorns on him. And he's, he's walking up to the, the, the place of the skull. He's carrying his own cross and people are spitting on him, smacking him. Punching him just to have to the say, say they did it, and then he finally gets up there and they lay him on that cross, and they, they put nails through his wrists and through his feet. And then they lift him up, and they put him in the hole. And the Bible says, as they lifted him up and placed that cross in the hole, that every joint in his body came out of joint. You ever dislocated something? I dislocated my big toe, and it hurts. I can't imagine dislocating everything. That pain where you can't even lift yourself up to breathe. The Bible says he was so severely beaten and disfigured that you couldn't even tell it was a man hanging on that cross. And he did it for me. And he did it for you. He allowed himself... To be beaten beyond human recognition, allowed his body to be broken so that we could receive re- redemption to God the Father. We drink the cup, it reminds us that he, he shed his blood in our place. The Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. God said, if you want to go to heaven, a perfect, sinless sacrifice has to be offered. It has to shed its blood for you to go to heaven. Well, we could never be that sacrifice, so Jesus came and did what we couldn't do. He was the perfect, sinless Lamb of God who willingly shed His blood so that we could have our sins paid for, so that we could have atonement with God the Father. He died for us so we could live. He suffered so we could receive a blessing. We remember he allowed his body to be broken so we could be restored. We remember his sacrifice and his love. Charles Spurgeon says that the the bread and the wine are the perfect items to remembering the suffering of Jesus for salvation. He says this. He says the bread must be broken. And what better emblem of suffering can you have than that? The bread itself, if rightly viewed, appears to be a mass of suffering. The seed is cast into the ground, which has been cut up by, sharp, by the sharp plowshare. It lies buried for a while in the cold clay. When it rises, it has to endure first the frost and the trials of the wintry weather, and then the heat of the summer. When it's ripe, it's cut down with a sharp sickle. The sheaves press upon one another. They are thrown upon the barn floor, and the precious grain is threshed out by a severe beating. Next, it must be taken to the mill to be crushed between great stones. And when it's utterly bruised into flying fine flour, it must be kneaded and made into dough. Then it must be baked in the oven, and it's not finished its long process of suffering till at last it is laid upon the table and, the broken, and broken in pieces, and then further broken by the teeth in order to enter into men and become their nourishment. So that the broken bread is an admirable emblem of that precious body of our Lord Jesus Christ, into which all sorts of griefs were condensed until the man of sorrows was utterly consumed by them. And look too at the wine in the cup. Does not that also indicate pain and suffering? Have you ever seen the vine, especially in the wine-producing countries, how it is cut down in the winter till it seems nothing but an old dead stump? How sharply do they prune it and cut it back if it is a good vine? And when at least it bears its clusters, the grapes are gathered and thrown into the wine-pressed and crushed beneath the trampling feet of the laborers. And the freely flowing juice of the grape is a picture of Christ's sacrifice. The yielding up of his life, the pouring out of the precious blood. Of Jesus. He allowed his body to be broken. He allowed his blood to be shed to begin a new covenant with us because he loves us so much. We went from a covenant of works to a covenant of grace. We went from what we could never do on our own to receiving what we could never deserve. This covenant was signed with his shed blood. That's the greatest display of grace the world's ever seen. The Son of God willingly endured everything he did to save us. What a show of grace. So we were observing the Lord's Supper. We're remembering the grace that God has poured out on us in the past. But we're also remembering, number two, the grace he gives us for the future. Look at verse number 27. It says, Now he are the body of Christ and the members in particular. And God hath set Some of you, I'm reading the wrong verse there. Sorry. I was like, that's good, but that makes no sense whatsoever. <coughs> All right, verse 27. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and... Let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Now, there's a lot to unpack in this verse. We're going to just focus on one thing here, and that's in verse number 27 when Paul talks about people taking the Lord's Supper unworthily. That's always bothered me. Because none of us are worthy of the sacrifice Jesus gave on, for, our, our, for our salvation. None of us are worthy of the broken body and the shed blood to pay our sin debt. So since none of us could ever be worthy of that, how could we be worthy of the Lord's Supper? But that's not what Paul's saying here. The word he uses is this Greek word anoxios, and it means in an unworthy manner. And what he's saying here is this word he uses is an adverb, not an adjective. So the word he uses, it's for the adults here. An adverb is an action. An adjective is a description. We are always unworthy. That's the adjective that describes who we are. We are unworthy, but we can take the Lord's supper unworthily. That's the action when our lives don't match up to the Christ that we worship. Tim Keller said it this way. Obviously the Lord's supper is not for perfect people, but for repentant people. But that's just the point. The Lord's Supper forces us to keep our inner experience linked with our outward behavior. It demands that we ask, am I truly living a life of gratitude and obeying God as I would be if I really believed he saved me at the infinite cost of his only son? Am I loving others sacrificially as I would be if I really believed I was saved by sacrificial love? See, what Paul says we need to examine our lives to make sure we're not taking the Lord's Supper unworthily. He means we're to ask the question: does what I say I believe, what I, does what I say I believe line up with how I'm living my life? Does what I say I does the God I, I say I worship, does my life back up what he says? And if it isn't. We need to repent. That's why Paul says, for if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged of others. You know what he's saying there? If you judge yourself as harshly as you judged others, you'd see that just like them, you're a hypocritical sinner in need of grace. So judge yourself just like you judge others. See, that's what repentance is. It is seeing ourselves as we are And coming to Jesus where we don't get condemned, we find grace. We can come to him and say, God, I've not been living my life like I should. I, I've maybe been treating my wife in a way I shouldn't, or I've been, I've been having these thoughts, or I've been kind of, I've let these relationships in my life, or whatever it is, God, I've been doing these things that I know are against what you say and against how you want me to live. And God, I come to you and I ask your forgiveness, and God always gives us forgiveness, and that's grace. God never gets tired of us coming to him for, for, for forgiveness. You know, look, we, I'm glad I'm not God. Because my kids come to me about the same stupid things they do over and over and over again. And I get tired of hearing, I'm sorry for doing that dumb thing I did yesterday and did it again today. I get sick of it. But you know, God never gets sick of me. I can come to God over and over and over again. And I always find forgiveness. And that's grace. And he shows us that grace so that we can have grace towards others, so that when your kids come to you over and over and over again about the same stupid thing, you can think, "Well, God, you forgive me every time. I guess I should forgive them. I guess I should help them. I guess I should encourage them, like you've done to me." Taking the Lord's supper, taking the Lord's supper in a worthy manner, means that we examine our hearts. We judge ourselves, and we confess our sins to God before we take it. And we all need to examine ourselves rightly. Make sure, and this is a silly thing to say, but make sure you're not hiding anything from God. Because here's, here's, a, here's a tip for you. You can't hide anything from God. He sees everything. He knows your your deepest, darkest, vilest thoughts. And he still loves you. Say, why? I don't know. But I'm so glad he does. If there's something you're hiding from someone or there's, there's a problem between you and another believer, we need to get it right. If your life doesn't line up with your faith, we need to confess it, get it right, repent of it, and find grace. Ask yourself a few questions. Are there any idols in your life? And we've been talking about idols a lot for the last couple weeks. But is there anything in your life that is stealing your affection from God? Are you doing anything to cause division in your family, at work, or in the church? If you are, confess it, repent of it, and find grace. Are you trusting Christ alone for your salvation? or Are you trying to earn your way to heaven? Is there anyone you need to forgive or anyone you need to ask forgiveness of? Are you willing to repent of the sin God brought to your mind before taking the Lord's Supper? The Lord's Supper isn't a place of physical nourishment, but it's a table of grace for the soul. It shows us past grace, gives us present grace, and thirdly, it prepares us for grace for the future. Look at verse number 26 again. For as often as you drink this and bread and eat, uh, as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till He comes. The Lord's Supper is where we approach a place of grace until Jesus comes again. Jesus' return is the ultimate hope of the believer. It's the anticipation that, yes, while Jesus has left us, He's coming back one day. He's returning to fix everything that's broken. He will one day wipe away every tear. He will one day remove all the pain and replace it with joy. And the future grace of the Lord's Supper prepares us for, his, for the return of Jesus and the marriage supper of the Lamb where we will be presented as the bride of Christ without spot, without blemish, and we will dine with him in the presence of grace forever. Where do you need grace today. Maybe you're in need of forgiveness. Maybe you are in need of offering forgiveness. The Lord's Supper is for you. This is where Jesus died to forgive our sins. The Lord's Supper reminds us of the grace of God on our lives to save us and sustain us. Thank you for listening to this message from New Grace. Our church is growing and our ministries are doing big things for Jesus. If you're looking for a way to get plugged in or would like more information about our church and our ministries, you can visit us online at reachingrono.com. Thanks so much for listening and have a blessed day.